And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, February 16th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how a Homeland Security lab referees between vendors trying to sell equipment and the TSA. Plus, now any well-meaning citizen can help refugees resettle in the United States. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Biden administration is looking to a familiar face to put tens of billions of dollars to good use at the IRS. President Biden last year nominated Danny Werfel, a former acting IRS commissioner, to become commissioner. Werfel tells a Senate Finance Committee hearing among his top priorities, if confirmed, the IRS answering more phone calls and shrinking a growing tax gap. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman attended the hearing. He joins me now. What did Werfel say? What were his top line concerns under questioning by the senators, Jory? At this stage in the IRS filing season, Werfel told the Senate Finance Committee that chief among his concerns is making sure that there are more IRS employees answering more phones and and generally improving that level of customer experience at the agency. Last year, the IRS answered about 13% of phone calls that were coming into the agency. What we've heard at this point, now that it has $80 billion through the Inflation Reduction Act, it's been able to answer about 90% of calls. So a huge difference there. This early in the filing season, it's answering fewer calls than it did for all of last year. But this is a promising start. Warfel said that the IRS has been underfunded and starved for resources for quite some time. And what he's really trying to do here is making is make sure that it has the ability to meet its critical mission. It's a very complicated code. It can be daunting. And so I think there has to be an objective to meet taxpayers where they are. If they can't afford uh, the, the resources to, to help them navigate, how can the IRS do more to answer their questions? All right. So they do have some of the money. I mean, that $80 billion was over 10 years, but they already have the first blob of money from the infrastructure bill in addition to their appropriation? They do. And you know we'll have more details on what that longer term spending plan is going to look like real soon. Under the direction of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the IRS is expected to produce a report later this month outlining those next steps. And Werfel did commit to the committee that he would make that public. Right. And Reddick is out of there already. So there are commissionless at this point at the IRS. So it's Yellen kind of doing the overseeing of that plan. Well, there is an acting commissioner keeping the seat warm, so to speak. But at this point, Yellen is overseeing some aspect of that spending. Okay, And then there's the enforcement side. Is that what Werfel was referring to on getting the so-called tax gap closed? That is another huge priority here, shrinking that tax gap between what taxpayers owe and what the IRS on paper is supposed to collect here. What he has said about this issue is that the IRS is really not serving both spectrums of taxpayers, the not so well to do and the top earners. He said that for that top earners bucket of folks, he said that the IRS has been ill-equipped to handle complex tax returns for high-income taxpayers. He said that they deserve a level of quality taxpayer service as well. And one of the things that he's looking to do in this en masse hiring the IRS is going to do in the coming years is 
hire tax experts who have that kind of background, have experience preparing taxes for those high-income earners. I'm not sure that training the current workforce will be sufficient. I think we, we want to hire and bring in experts, maybe some of the same individuals that earlier in their careers prepared these very intricate returns and are ready to come back and potentially serve their country and maybe years later help us unpack them. In other words, he wants to go to, say, Los Angeles and hire Steven Spielberg's tax lawyer and that kind of person to get into the IRS. For an example, but you know, these are obviously <laughs> well-paid people, and so that might be a challenge to go after these, but that's the goal anyway. And the topic of audits also came up. Warfel did make a commitment to the committee that, uh, as the administration has said time and again, they don't want to raise the audit rate for people making less than $400,000 a year. They want to go after people who aren't meeting their tax obligation. One thing Warfel and other IRS leaders before him have said is the worst thing the IRS can do is audit someone who is fully compliant on their taxes and they wasted their time and resources and the taxpayer's time and resources doing this whole runaround and there is no money owed. And so this is something he really wants to buckle down on. Uh, And this is something that through the hiring and through the IT modernization, the IRS is going to have a much better picture of going after the likeliest cases where some money is owed. And the tax gap came up in the hearing. It did. You know, this is a number that changes under former IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick. The official tally was $540 billion in taxes going uncollected every year. Reddick did say that number is outdated. It's hard to pin down, but he said he wouldn't be surprised if that number has gotten as high as $1 trillion a year. And so that's something Werfel says, as the agency is able to staff up, they'll get a better picture of what that tax gap figure actually is uh, coming out to be. Right. My advice to Danny Werfel, don't promise them a trillion dollars. Don't promise them $500 because it will not happen. Getting back to that spending plan for the additional money that came in for the IRS under the infrastructure bill. Did he talk about that and how did that get covered at the hearing? He did mention it. He did reassure senators that this is something that he will make public when it is available. The IRS will probably release that plan before he is confirmed by the Senate. And one thing that senators did ask of him is that this is not just one static plan for the 10 years that the IRS will come back annually or in some increment and update that plan as it's implemented, and that reflects the reality of what's going on on the ground. Did the IT and systems modernization come up at all at the hearing? Because that keeps shifting and changing, and they've got this set of initiatives and that set of initiatives. They cancel some, they start up other ones, and yet the modernization seems to sort of come out bit by bit. This is something that there was definitely some bipartisan concern from the committee. We did recently see from agency watchdogs that one of the major IT modernization efforts here for the individual master file at the IRS that is behind schedule. The idea was for that to be fully modernized by 2030. The reality on the ground is that the IRS had to shift some resources, pull people away from that project. And so it is behind schedule. And at this point, it's unclear of when that IMF system will be fully modernized and if it will actually still meet that 2030 goal. Well, it's been going for 60 years, can probably go another 60 if need be, but it would be nice to modernize it. And also, I guess the uh, record of Danny Werfel in the federal government prior to his last post as acting commissioner of IRS, that came up too, and he goes pretty far back. 
Yeah, a number of senators remember him from his days as OMB controller or as acting commissioner. These are just some of the hats he's worn in government. Collectively, he holds more than 15 years of federal experience across the George W. Bush and Obama administrations. In his days as OMB controller, he oversaw the relief package in the aftermath of the 2008 recession. That was not quite a trillion dollars, so not even a fifth of what has currently been spent for COVID relief. But that was, of course, an impressive figure and something that really did need someone to keep their eye on. Was your sense of the hearing that he has bipartisan support for getting confirmed? My sense is yes, that, you know, this is someone that both parties are familiar with. This is someone who has walked the walk in the past and uh, they are willing to give him a chance to see what he can do at this agency that has more than a few challenges. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, thanks to the State Department, now any well-meaning citizen can help refugees resettle in the United States. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Lots of people flowing past the U.S. southern border really are refugees who deserve protection. Now the state and health and human services departments have jointly started up a way to let regular citizens help refugees resettle in the United States. It's called Welcome Corps. For how it works, we turn to the senior advisor for the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration at State, Rosanna Kim. Ms. Kim, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. So tell us about Welcome Corps. Who is this aimed at? And then we'll get into how it actually works as a program. But who are you trying to draw in to the core? As you may know, the Welcome Corps, when we announced it, we announced it as the boldest innovation in refugee resettlement in four decades. You may know that in the traditional system, the State Department has traditionally partnered with nonprofit resettlement agencies to provide initial resettlement assistance and support to newly arriving refugees. Through the Welcome Corps, really leaning on American communities, everyday Americans to step up and take on a leading role in providing that initial resettlement assistance and support to newly arriving refugees. This program is designed to serve refugees who are admitted through the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, or U.S. RAP, as we refer to it. And that program goes back some years, doesn't it? That's right. So we formalized the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program in 1980, and that's essentially setting up the system we know it today. The system hasn't changed much since then. So as I said, traditionally, we've got a very strong partnership with our resettlement agencies. Now we're really creating new opportunities for Americans to get directly involved. And because the people that need the help, the refugees, came through that program, the older program, that way that those willing to help can be assured they really are refugees deserving of this protection and not criminal elements or something trying to get into the United States. That's right. So all refugees who are processed through the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, they're some of the most highly vetted immigrant populations to the United States. So they must undergo a number of different checks, including verification of their refugee status by USCIS, uh, security vetting by a number of U.S. intelligence agencies, as well as a medical check. So these are folks who we have determined to be a refugee in need of protection, in need of resettlement, and we can safely resettle here in the United States. And give us a sense of the numbers right now of people coming in that are refugees under the U.S. RAP program. Well, the president has set a very ambitious goal for us. He hopes that we can resettle 125,000 refugees this fiscal year. We're working very hard to meet that target. Now, when the president said it, he knew that we wouldn't be able to meet it right away. As I think you may know, 
In previous years, the program faced a lot of challenges. The domestic infrastructure was severely underfunded. Uh, the target had been reduced. And so we're working very hard to build back up. And this initiative, the Welcome Corps, is part of that effort. We're trying to expand our domestic resettlement capacity. And we believe that by tapping into the energy, the enthusiasm, the interest of everyday Americans and private sponsors, we can grow our capacity alongside the critical work that our resettlement agency partners will continue to do. And the capacity to resettle refugees, what does it consist of? Like apartment buildings and help with getting jobs and this kind of thing? I mean, someone lands here and they really often don't have much, correct? That's right. So through the Welcome Corps, we're asking private sponsors to take on a similar amount of responsibility that our resettlement agencies partners do in the traditional program. So that means they're going to be providing support to arriving refugees for the first 90 days of their arrival. They're going to provide many of the same types of initial supports and services. We're talking about picking folks up from the airport, finding them affordable housing, connecting them to services, enrolling kids in school, connecting adults to language learning and employment opportunities, and really putting them on a path to integration. This is just the beginning of the journey for many arriving refugees, but we believe Americans can play a really critical role and, and do what the, what Americans do best, you know, be guides, friends, and neighbors to folks arriving here, rebuilding here in the United States. And the traditional nonprofits that you mentioned earlier, what types of organizations are those? Are like churches or social service agencies? Or, I mean, who has traditionally done this? What you said is exactly right. So currently we partner with 10 uh, nonprofit organizations that serve as resettlement agencies. Many of them are faith-based. Uh, many of them are, are experienced social service providers. So many organizations you may be familiar with, for example, the International Rescue Committee, Faith side, we've got uh, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, Church World Service. So a dedicated sort of network of partners that do this work well. And actually, I should say, you know, through the Welcome Corps, we're partnering with a new kind of consortium of, of actors. But actually, that consortium includes two of our current resettlement agency partners. And so the team that is behind the Welcome Corps is a team of, of experts right, with dedicated experience in, in refugee resettlement. We're speaking with Rosanna Kim. She's senior advisor for the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration at the State Department. And let's talk about the Welcome Corps, which will seek to get individuals. You're partnering with HHS. What are the terms of that partnership? What does HHS bring to it? We've been working really closely with our colleagues at HHS, and in particular in the Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR. The Welcome Corps, as I said, we designed it to mirror the traditional resettlement program the State Department is involved in, and that's initial sort of resettlement, first 90 days. But as we know, that's just the beginning of the journey for many resettled refugees. Our partners at ORR play a critical role in thinking through what happens during and after those 90 days. And how do we continue to provide services that put refugees on a path to successful integration? And so since the Welcome Corps, the formal level of responsibility we're asking private sponsors to cover is just that first 90 days. We're thinking really hard about how do we help sponsors prepare for what comes after those 90 days? Of course, we expect that sponsors will continue to play a critical role as friends and as neighbors. But in terms of that formal kind of responsibility, what happens afterwards and how we make sure that sponsored refugees get connections to those longer-term services that are funded by our ORR partners, that's really where the partnership and collaboration has been, just thinking through that kind of entire uh, journey and how we make sure that sponsored refugees continue to access those services. And for individuals that want to participate and become sponsors and helpers of refugees, I imagine those people have to be vetted pretty carefully too, don't they? That's right, of course. As I said, refugees themselves are some of the most highly vetted immigrant populations to the United States. 
but we owe it to them by the same token to make sure that they are being supported by individuals who are capable and who we've certified as appropriate to participate in this program. So all private sponsors, they will need to go through an application process that our partners are managing as part of the Welcome Corps. That application process is now live, welcomecorps.org. And that includes passing a background check, showing proof of financial means. All sponsors will have to raise a certain amount of private funds to show right, their kind of commitment to this program. And they'll, need, they'll need to submit an application that includes what we're calling a welcome plan. And that's a, a way to make sure that we're asking sponsors to explain to us, right, how are they going to provide all those equivalent services I mentioned that resettlement agencies have to provide? You know, what's the plan for finding housing and enrolling kids in school? And so that whole application sort of package, the checks, the welcome plan itself is vetted by our partners to certify and approve groups to participate. Yeah, it sounds a little bit more complicated than it might seem at first glance, because, for example, finding housing that the refugee can afford, if you have a you know wealthy, well-heeled, but well-meaning type of sponsor, they may not even know where to begin to look for that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And so as part of the Welcome Corps, our partners are also thinking through how we provide training to sponsors to educate them, to help them think through the process, other kinds of resources to help them fill out the application. But really, all Americans participating in the Welcome Corps are going to receive support at every step of the way, right, from experts behind this program. We'll help them think through, right, what it means to resettle refugees. It's not an insignificant responsibility, but it's one that we believe and have already seen, right, Americans step up in really extraordinary ways to take on. So folks going through this process will receive that kind of support from experts to really guide them along the way. And can people band together in small groups, say they used to have like the Adopt-A-Road program in neighborhoods? Could you have an Adopt-A-Refugee with some of your friends and neighbors? That's exactly the model that we've designed for Welcome Corps. And it's a model that is grounded really in best practice for actually how other countries have designed very similar programs. So through the Welcome Corps, uh, individuals who are participating will have to form what we're calling a private sponsored group. That's a group of at least five or more individuals. We're talking American citizens or permanent residents, adults over the age of 18, all residing in or near the community where they expect to help resettle a refugee. And really that group model is really important. This isn't just about providing that kind of financial support or their services. It's really about Americans coming together, right, as communities to offer the support. And we know, right, that this work is done best when it's done in a group. So that's exactly right. And will these sponsors have direct contact with refugees? For example, suppose they wanted to have them in a home for dinner, that type of thing. Is that possible? Yes. And I mean, this is very much what we expect to happen in the program. And in many ways, I think it's one of the best aspects of the program, right? Groups are going to be there on the front lines welcoming the family that they're going to support. And I think they're going to build out that really important social connection, right? Refugees are not only leaving behind their homes and their possessions, but they're leaving behind their own friends, their own social networks. And so when they arrive in the United States, a really key part of their integration is, is making sure that they can feel a part of their new communities. And I think sponsors, that kind of social connection you kind of mentioned, inviting folks to meals and sharing cultural perspectives and connections, it's going to be a really powerful part of what we hope will make this program successful. And sometimes refugees are forced out of a nation, you know, through threats of violence or political reprisal or jailing, but they might have been people with some means in their own countries. Is there also a process to help them extract the wealth they did have left behind, say, in banks in their home countries, such that they can help themselves get established here? I can't speak to the specifics of that process, but what I will say is when we think about refugee resettlement, it's a tool, really, that's only available to less than 1% of refugees around the world. And we're talking about 
folks really who it's determined that there is no other durable solution for them, right? They can't uh, remain and integrate in the country where they may have fled to. They can't return to their home country. And so as part of the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, which the Welcome Corps, right, is, is part of and is serving, when refugees are screened um, and determined to be in need of resettlement, they're really determined to be you know, many of the world's most vulnerable and ones where truly the only durable solution available to them is uh, resettling in a third country. And in our case, resettling to the United States. I guess it's better here than in some of the horrible refugee camps that have sprouted up all over the world where people seem caught in an endless limbo. That's right. As I said, I mean, folks who are coming here being resettled through the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, they're ones where we've determined they're in need of that durable solution, and that durable solution is third country resettlement. And by coming here to the United States, giving them an opportunity to kind of rebuild their lives here in search of safety and protection, and the Welcome Corps being kind of now a new aspect, right, that can help really put them on solid ground and, again, put them on that path to integration. And a final question, how are you getting the word out to communities and people that might want to avail themselves of the Corps, and have you had much take up so far? It's a great question. And actually, one of the things we're doing is talking to, to folks like you. So thank you. We are working very hard to get the word out. We announced the program on January 19th. And the response has been really extraordinary. I think we've had thousands of people sign up for the information sessions and application sessions that are available on the website, really delighted and, and moved by the interests of the American people, which we always sort of suspected what would happen. But it's been great to see it in, in real time. Anyone who wants to learn more can go to the website. Again, that's Welcome Corps. C-O-R-P-S dot org. And we're working really hard, right, with our, our partners to really get the word out to Americans all over the country. Really what's going to make this program successful, right, is everyday Americans, where they are, you know, finding out and getting involved. So we're really eager and excited, and you'll see more from us in the coming weeks and months as we continue to roll the program out. Well, as a people, we're better than our politicians, that's for sure. Rosanna Kim is Senior Advisor for the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration at the State Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this group says the federal government for all of the auctions is still a spectrum hog. But first, how a Homeland Security lab referees between vendors trying to sell equipment and the TSA. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Transportation Security Administration is constantly generating new screening requirements, equipment that can sense or detect something and sound an alarm if need be. It falls to the Homeland Security Department's Transportation Security Laboratory, operated by the Science and Technology Directorate, to work with TSA and the potential vendors to evaluate and test a particular technology. In the third interview in this week's series with laboratory staff, I spoke with the Developmental Test and Evaluation Alarm Resolution Branch Manager, Jason Stairs. We're really a middle person between the OEMs who are a business trying to sell equipment to the government and the government trying to find equipment that matches their requirements. So we really uh, work that middle area and help the systems get ready to go to certification. Give us an example of a type of technology or system and what do you do with it? A classic one would be an explosive trace detection system or an ETD, and those are the systems in the airport that after you go through the primary x-ray and primary personnel screening that they might swab a little cloth on your baggage and put it into a machine. 
And what that system is looking for is trace amounts of explosives. And we define trace as you can't see it. So it's little particles of explosives that the machine can detect and pick up. And those are systems we've worked with for years, working with the vendors, trying to help get them ready, and then uh, informing the government of the capabilities. So you have the primary requirement from TSA, and you work with industry to get them there. Yes. And so we understand the government's requirements And then we also understand the technology, sort of our interpreters of the requirement to tell the technology vendors, this is what you need to do and you need to get better here. And then the people who are buying the equipment aren't always technical. So we tell them, yes, it met your requirements. So Right. So TSA then doesn't actually contract for the gear in the sense of here's what we need and then you can sell it to us. TSA traditionally contracts with a company to buy the equipment. So that's after it's already passed through testing. And in science and technology in the S&T directorate where we sit, there is funding for some of these companies to develop towards those requirements and there's funding for our testing to really it's a spiral development. So sometimes it can take years uh, where a company comes in with a system, we test it, say this is where you did well, but you know you need to work over here and, and do a little bit better. And they'll go away, they'll do some research and development, then they come back, oh, you got it, you did better, or geez, yeah, you're not quite there yet. So it kind of does go around in the spiral development evolution of the technology towards those requirements. And in trace explosives seems to be a focus of a lot of the work at the laboratory. What is left to be understood about it? Well, the problem is it's just so difficult to test. Ideally, we want to have our test be reproducible and quantifiable. So if TSA says you need to detect this very specific amount of explosives, we need to be able to know that we're delivering that amount of explosives to the technology and you can't see it, so that's hard, and then make sure you're doing it the same every time. So it's just really a laborious process. It takes a lot of analytical equipment I'm sure you've seen as you toured the lab. And uh, we're actually one of the few places in the world that has all of that equipment just focused on uh, this effort. Right. And there's also new and exotic explosives coming into being all the time. So you almost may have to and, start over every time. Yeah. The job security uh, <laughs> keeps us having to sometimes do things over again in the sense that we've tested some system, we've certified it. Once that happens and it's out in the field, we keep one of those copies here. But then there's a new intelligence that comes in, and then there's a new threat that people are chatting about that shouldn't be chatting about it. And so, you know, then they ask us, could the systems detect this new thing? And then we have to go through and do the the testing cycle again. And do the surfaces upon which it has to be detected or the manner in which it has to be detected, there's a lot of variables there also? Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> I mean, And understanding those. So the explosive trace detection systems are chemical detectors, basically. And we're looking for very specific chemicals, the explosive chemicals. But there's a lot of other chemicals in the universe, right, that could go through a checkpoint from hand lotions to whatever might be on a surface. And those can all change the chemistry in an ETD, which might change the results. So that's also why we're we're constantly looking into those things, primarily to make sure our test is representative of what they would find in a security environment. Right. And let's take the carry-on example. Your carry-on baggage goes through a machine, mm-hmm. and it's x-rayed from different angles, and a 3D image is developed of it, of what's in there, pictures of things. That is not going to see the trace explosive. No. And there's also not a detector inside that machine that's sniffing for explosive traces. No, though we've tried that. 
Right. So that means that it's the discretion of the TSO, to your knowledge, that they would even try to test for a trace explosive in the first place. Well, trace gets triggered as an alarm resolution technology that if they have suspicions for one reason or another, but might be that they see something in the X-ray image that they're not sure about or suspicious about, then they could send it to trace and then they'll look for uh, those invisible trace particles. So a lot of studies we did years ago and some still now ongoing is making bombs, doing it in clean and dirty methods, and then measuring that trace amount of explosives left behind. And it's very difficult. We have some of the world experts here, and there's some people here that can do it, but we have all the right tools and all the right equipment. It's, it can be very difficult to do such a clean build that you haven't left some trace behind. Right. So I guess if you're a really good bomb maker or something, you would do your work in a hazmat suit and then kind of get out of it. A lot of protocols, yeah, go into it to be that careful. And uh, when you get into the trace world, or at least I can say personally, when I got into it, I found out what trace meant by, I, I, you know, I was working with something in a, in a hood in the laboratory and a little bit of the powder just poofed. And I went, ooh, I hope that doesn't cause a problem. And then I came in Monday, that was Friday, and they said, what happened in the fume hood? It's blowing out all the trace equipment. And I said, I'm sorry, that was me. And then they spent three days trying to clean it, and it just kept coming up hot, just from that one little poof of material that went in the hood. They're very sensitive. It's incredible how sensitive they are. But they are just looking for those trace amounts, not the actual bulk bomb. And that's where there are some other alarm resolution technologies being looked at uh, that would look at that bulk material to identify it. This would be if you've definitely found something that you're suspicious about, can you now use a bulk resolution tool to identify it? Right. But in the trace world, then the challenge is twofold, sounds like. One, there's new types of explosive materials being whipped up by these people all the time, whoever they are, the terrorists. And at the same time, you need to detect ever smaller levels of things you do know how to trace. Well, luckily, they don't keep making them lower. They, they are at a set level that uh, we're looking for, but they do keep adding on to the list, uh, which is challenging for the technology. But, you know, we've continued to do it to this day. I believe they're still we're working now on updating systems that are currently deployed to do just that. And what are some of the challenges in the bulk area once you're past trace? Well, so for bulk area, the ETD, as I mentioned, is a chemical detector. And on the bulk resolution technology side, it's more of uh, physical detectors looking for you know, optical spectroscopy. So both will detect and identify individual molecules, but one does it with a laser and the other does it with a time-of-flight IMS tube. So some of the challenges on the bulk side are security organizations sometimes want, like you, I heard you refer to it earlier, they want magic or magic wands. Like we want to be able to see through everything and know what's in it. Well, it's hard to see through everything. There's just some things that are going to be more challenging and you might have a different technology to look at that. So that's where a lot of the, the different layers of security, uh, we had an old director that referred to it as Swiss cheese, that there might be holes in one technology, but then there's another set of Swiss cheese that will catch those holes. And once you add it all up, you can't get through all the holes. But that's a primary challenge right there, being able to see into the insides of something. And you're making a lot of progress in detecting what is in jars and bottles and containers pursuant to, I guess, TSA's need to be able to let people bring a bottle of something that's 16 ounces or whatever. TSA currently has deployed bottle liquid scanners, which are mostly made for medical essentials. But that technology, now that it's been out in the field for a few years, has matured. Industry has learned much more of what those requirements are of wanting to see into things, and they are starting to 
really advance the capability of their systems to be able to see into some of these containers. So if it's a shampoo bottle, for example, they'd be able to look through them and, and see if that's a, an explosive in there or if it's just shampoo. Right. And there's a great deal of variation among even a given class of liquid, right? I understand like gin and vodka, both clear distilled beverages, have different spectroscopic qualities or different detectable qualities, so you have to really be fine-grained about it. Yeah, they can have different signatures, and it depends on, right, how fine-grained you want to get. Uh, for gin and vodka, you know, we would maybe, if we were curious to find such things, we would just set it to detect ethanol, which they both have ethanol in it. So you would find that it's an alcohol. If you wanted to really get into what kind of alcohol, that would require a whole other level of training and testing. But right now you don't have that requirement. No, it's easier to find there's fewer threats that we're looking for versus all of the other things that aren't threats. So it's it's more of a, is it a, a bad thing or not? If it's not bad, then it's good. Sounds like though the trend here is towards being able to detect more and more things as a way of letting people take more and more things back on airplanes someday. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, there is conversation going on of, well, can we just identify the good things. And then if we can say it's a good thing, then we'll let it through. But just like I mentioned, there's so many more benign items that are out there that to be able to try to pick all of them and all of their variations and train an instrument to identify each of them is just a, it's a large task. Well, there's infinity out there. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When sometimes they say, what chemicals will it alarm on, for example? And I'm like, you mean in the entire universe or in this – I mean you have to sort of bound that a little bit. Right. Uh, Prell and Selsun Blue are <laughs> right. totally different animals. Yeah. How much do you want to differentiate? Jason Stairs is the Developmental Test and Evaluation Alarm Resolution Branch Manager at the Homeland Security Department's Transportation Security Laboratory in Atlantic City. Tomorrow we wind up the series with the Applied Research Division's top chemist – Find all of the interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this group says the federal government for all of those auctions is still a spectrum hog. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A technology trade association is urging Congress to update the law that lets the FCC auction off radio spectrum held by the government. In fact, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation basically says the government continues to hog much spectrum that could be more efficiently used by industry. For details, we turn to ITIF's Director of Broadband and Spectrum Policy, Joe Kane. Mr. Kane, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. It seems like we've been talking about spectrum for 25 years now. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a big topic, and there, there's always need for more. So the economy is only getting more and more wireless. And as that uh, happens, we're going to see more and more need for spectrum. And so the need to use what we have efficiently and find more wherever we can is uh, always ongoing. Is the auction mechanism what's needed more of or what has to happen, do you think, to get more spectrum to where it's commercially best used? Yeah, so auctions are important, and it is important that we renew the FCC's authority to auction spectrum. But right now, the bulk of the most important spectrum is held by the federal government, and the federal government is not under the jurisdiction of the Federal Communications Commission. And so we need some sort of mechanism to incentivize those federal agencies who have really important missions that they have to accomplish with spectrum, but also maybe don't have the incentive to use it as efficiently as possible. 
to maybe uh, be better stewards of the spectrum and give up some where they can. And where is this spectrum that the government is using and what are some typical ways they're using it? I mean, is it all Defense Department or do some of the others have it also? Defense Department has a bulk of it, I think. It's, you know, you can sort of think of the obvious things the Defense Department would be using it for. Radar is, is a very common one. But we also have things like weather satellites that are run by NOAA and and uh, GPS, and to some extent, has a, a governmental side to it. And so, yeah, it's, it's lots of different things. Also, just communications networks that, you know, the kinds of things that you would have uh, your cell phone running on, the Department of Defense needs those too. The most important spectrum right now, both for the government and for commercial use, is in the mid-band, which is generally around the 3 to 7 gigahertz. Didn't they recently take away 7 gigahertz from wireless microphones? There's lots of stuff around the edges there, but I think the big swaths of spectrum that we would need to get, you know, you need wide channels to have the amount of throughput that we're seeing with, you know, services like 5G and, you know, the coming things like AR and VR are going to need a lot of bandwidth. And so you need sort of big, clear swaths of spectrum for them to operate in. Yes, God forbid you couldn't dance in spectral form on a meta Facebook thing or something. And we certainly need that for for national whatever. But I mean, how much do you feel, say there's three to seven, just for sake of argument, that's a range of four gigahertz in there. How much can the government, do you feel, actually give up and still be able to meet national security and other missions? If we're just looking at it now, there's there's a good argument from a lot of the agencies that, look, we need what we have. But there's also things that we could do to make uh, the government use their spectrum more efficiently, and therefore they, there would be more excess capacity than there is now. So if you just look at it in a static sense, uh, there's less. But, you know, as we're, we're moving in the long run, there are things the federal government could do that would make their receivers, their spectrum work better for them. They could accomplish their missions better and also have spectrum left over for commercial use. So technical things like wave division multiplexing that's used in fiber, that kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, that kind of thing. And I think also just better filtering of receivers. A lot of problems that we've seen is just when you have uh, devices in the field that are listening to a really wide range of frequencies more than they have to, that you can sort of clamp that down and say, let's listen only to the frequencies that we really need. And therefore, you can fit more services in on the edges of those bands. We're speaking to Joe Kane, the ITIF's Director of Broadband and Spectrum Policy. So what are your recommendations then for using it more efficiently and incentivizing agencies to use it more efficiently? Because, you know, otherwise they can just keep doing what they're doing and why bother? Yeah, the incentives are really the hardest part because unlike for a commercial wireless operator, you know, if you have spectrum that you paid a lot of money for, you really need to use it efficiently or otherwise you're going to go out of business. But for the government, they don't really have that. So we have this thing called the Commercial Spectrum Enhancement Act that created a spectrum relocation fund, which is supposed to essentially pay the costs of federal users when they move out of a band and allow commercial use there. But there's a flaw in that legislation that says that you can only use that money for equipment of a comparable capability. And so we sort of end up replacing old bad equipment with the same old bad equipment instead of saying, you know, we're going to upgrade and, you know, put in devices that use spectrum more efficiently. And so I think a legislative fix there would be very helpful in saying, you no, know, we are going to prioritize more efficient spectrum using devices in the federal government and also give guidance to OMB. So the Office of Management and Budget is charged sort of overseeing how this act works. And they have been kind of stingy with it and saying that we aren't going to allow the funds to be used for a lot of different kinds of things that could make Spectrum more efficient in the long run. Yeah, to use Spectrum more efficiently, equipment has to be upgraded. So there's an acquisition 
real cost here to replace radios and transmission equipment? Yeah, definitely. That is a big barrier to anything is that all this stuff costs money. But I think that, you know, in the long run, the real costs come from having not enough spectrum available or we end up with interference uh, disputes. You know, we look at what's happening now or what happened last year with the airplanes and cell phones having some conflicts with each other. And there's billions of dollars on the line there that if we had spent $26 million up front, we could have saved uh, a whole lot of headache and a whole lot of money down the road. So having that new equipment in place early is really important to saving money in the long run. Yeah, I heard my own station on my keyboard amp the other day because I had a badly shielded cable plugged in. And I thought, boy, this is really strange. This is not a radio. It's a keyboard amp. But somehow it was picking up Federal News Network. I said, I hope it happens all over the place. But what about the international aspects of this? And you mentioned radar and DOD, which operates worldwide. Satellites operate worldwide. We just had a little balloon come over from China that was presumably using spectrum to get whatever it was purloining over to China. I mean, five megahertz is five megahertz wherever on the earth you are. Is that part of the equation? I think it is. There's definitely, it's an important to have international harmonization in the spectrum that you're using just because it's it's helpful for uh, uh, device manufacturers to not have to make a different device for every part of the world. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of benefits to be gained from that. But I also think the international dimension also emphasizes the importance of making your uh, equipment resilient because uh, the Department of Defense isn't always going to be operating in a place where the FCC can come in and kick off the people who are operating in the wrong channel. You know, sometimes there are going to be people intentionally interfering with you. And so a device that is more resilient to the bad guys also is going to free up more space for the good guys. And by the way, does 5G operate in this mid-band? It does, yes. So there's there's been some uh, allocations for 5G in the mid-band already. I think there is significant need for more. That's uh, right now the lower three gigahertz band is one of the main places we're looking. It's currently used by federal radar, Department of Defense radar. And so trying to figure out a way to use that, keep the radar working maybe in a smaller range of frequencies or maybe on a shared basis with commercial users is something that's very much talked about right now. And one of your recommendations is Congress should require administrative pricing for spectrum consumed by federal agencies. Who do you pay if it, if the spectrum is in the government's hands? Yeah, yeah. So that's there, this is an idea that gets kicked around a lot, but I think it is to some level becomes sort of an academic exercise where you have the government paying itself for its own spectrum. Uh, but I do think it is useful to put numbers on a piece of paper and say, look, this is how much we're using. This is how much it would go. We think it might go for in a private market and say, wow, this is maybe like DOD, you're using way more resources than we thought you were just because we weren't accounting for the numbers properly. And so, you know, we have GSA out there trying to buy buildings and things for the federal government. And we keep track of those prices and say, look, this is a real cost. These resources could be used for other things in the economy. And we want to keep track of what that is. And just to get back to the question of what the industrial uses might be, are there important industrial requirements for this area of spectrum besides virtual reality and stuff like that, nonsense like that on Facebook? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest ones right now is industrial Internet of Things networks. So you can have a private network operating within your factory that can make the factory itself a lot more efficient, reduce maintenance times and reduce power consumption and things like that. That is important for everything from just helping a company save on its bottom line, but also things like climate change, if you are, don't have to use as much energy. But I also think you know, we're just consuming more and more data just in a sort of broadband connectivity sense that it, we have now people using 5G connections just as their home broadband. 
And if we want more of that, just from a competitive standpoint, we're going to need a lot more spectrum to support it. Right. A lot of industry sectors say that Internet of Things is a major application when they get into artificial intelligence, using Internet of Things data and transmission of that data. And so that would argue for a stronger 5G presence, because right now 5G is only partially fulfilling its its potential. Yeah, I think we still definitely have a long way to go with 5G. We're still sort of in the early days of it. But I think that's, that's always the case with, with new technologies that you put it out there and you don't really know what people are going to do with it. Like with 4G, we didn't really know what the app economy was going to look like when it first rolled out. But the, here, here we are where everything is now uh, on our cell phones as an app. All right. Well, I just want to keep 1500 AM, whatever that falls on the spectrum. Joe Kane is Director of Broadband and Spectrum Policy for the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was fun. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tune into the Federal Drive anytime. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Federal Aviation Administration is assuring Congress it's taken steps to avoid a repeat of last month's air traffic meltdown. The underlying cause was a database failure in an IT system, parts of which are 30 years old. But those fixes are more or less stopgaps. It'll take at least another two years before the IT infrastructure at heart of the issue is replaced with more modern technology. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has more details on the FAA's modernization plans. The FAA messaging system that issues notices to air missions, or NOTAMs, went offline in the evening of January 10th and wasn't fully restored until 9 a.m. the next morning. While it was offline, the FAA ordered a complete halt to all aircraft departures nationwide for nearly two hours. It's the first time that's happened since the 9-11 attacks. The NOTAM system is important enough that it does have multiple backups designed to take over when the main system fails. But the FAA says those backups failed too. The agency says the root cause was a contractor inadvertently deleting essential files from the main database. And because of the way the system is architected, those file deletions immediately replicated themselves to the backup systems. Billy Nolan, the acting FAA administrator, says the agency has put processes in place to keep that precise problem from happening again. Number one, we have instituted a one-hour synchronization delay between the primary database and the backup database. That gives us time to make sure that we have no issues there. Secondly, we've, we've increased the level of oversight to ensure that more than one person is available when work or updates are being done on the live database, along with an up-leveling our level of oversight within the command center to ensure that we've got leadership present So those, of course, are more in the area of administrative controls. But Nolan told the Senate Commerce Committee there's no way to guarantee that some other problem won't sideline the aging system in the coming months and years. When we think about the age of our system and the age of systems we have, we do have redundancy there. Could I sit here today and tell you there will never be another issue on the NOTAM system? No, sir, I cannot. What I can say is that we are making every effort to modernize and look at our procedures. In fact, part of this investigation has us working with MITRE and other entities to look at across the totality of our systems, how they interrelate, what is the level of redundancy, and is there any additional thing that we need to do? And certainly we'll have more as that investigation ensues. The NOTAM system, which distributes operational safety messages to every pilot and airspace user in the country, is actually two separate systems for now. First, there's the 30-year-old legacy version, which the FAA calls the U.S. NOTAM system. Since 2009, the agency's been working to replace it with a new version called the Federal NOTAM system. 
About 80% of the aviation industry has already been migrated to the new system, but about 20% of users, including the entire Defense Department, is still on the legacy version. Because such a big proportion of the aviation community still relies on the old version, when it fails, it impacts the entire country. And Nolan says the FAA doesn't expect to move everyone to the federal NOTAM system until 2025. But Nolan says that schedule and the rest of the agency's IT modernization plans depend on adequate and on-time appropriations and authorizations from Congress. It's all about ensuring, that, again, that we have that funding there and we'll look for to what comes forward in the president's budget. Our goal is to take every dollar that we are given and we are. our goal is to be good stewards of that and move forward to modernization. So we're talking thousands of systems. NOTAMS is just one of, and so we don't want to leave the community with the impression that we fix NOTAMS and we're done, and I know you know that's not where we are. But we'll certainly have a prioritization about how we get there. NOTAMS is a big one. We want to continue to deliver on the benefits of next-gen everything we've done there, even as we stare into the future to say, how do we enable all these new entrants that are coming in? In the meantime, Nolan says part of the investigation into the January failure is looking at whether the NOTAM system should be formally designated as a safety-critical system. As of now, it has a lower-level designation, mission support. Part of the, this look is taking a look at all of our enterprise system, those we consider critical to the NAS versus the support. So we're absolutely taking a look at the classification there to make sure we've got it right. Some of the differences are just the levels of controls and engineering controls that you'd have in place for a critical system and those, that, those added levels of redundancy that you'd expect to have uh, given the criticality of them. But Congress wants improvements to the NOTAM system sooner than 2025. Legislation the House passed in late January would order the FAA to stand up a task force to look at near-term improvements to the resiliency and cybersecurity of the system. A similar bill is pending in the Senate. In the meantime, Senator Maria Cantwell, the Commerce Committee chairwoman, says the FAA needs to tell Congress what it can do right now to make the system more redundant. I want to get an answer within a week about the NOTAM system having a separate backup, totally separate backup, that could be used. You're saying what happened here is somebody infected the file and basically ended up deleting something that then caused the outage to the system. So the question is... You're now trying to put human redundancy there so that this won't happen again. But if the same system is a network, including the backup servers and other places, and whatever action somebody mistakenly takes on files still affects the whole system, what would be important to understand is can the FAA set up a true redundant server system that would allow for that file corruption that happened not to happen across the entire system. And that's what we need to know the answer to. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 